Something podcast with Valley and the Big. And now, Silicon Steve Valley and the Big. Forty something podcast. And we are back with you. And we are excited. The Vig on the other side. And we are joined today Ray Pearson, the author of the fantastic fictional book. God's cruel joke, and we're going to get into that and whoever, whatever comes our way today. Sounds great. Hey, we're starting to line up some guests here. You better watch out. Uh, we're, we're making things interesting here on the 40 Somethings podcast. So, this is the second week in a row where we got a guest. So, we're on the up and ups here, turning it around. I think we have one next week, our historian Jesse Tappen. And uh, we're going to talk about how the Civil War, what's interesting, actually, in pre-production, when I was talking with Ray a little bit, uh, he, he actually brought this up about, we were talking about Confederate statues and such, and he the topic there is going to be how the one of the few wars, if ever, that the losers really rewrote the history opposed to the winners of that war. So, oh, and nice. Ray and I were actually talking about that, something similar to that uh, previously. So that's interesting. Yeah, absolutely true. So, Ray, how are you today? Let's introduce you. He just said something. Ray, what's going on? Nothing much. Thank you for having me on, guys. I really appreciate this. Uh, you know, it's very cool that you guys are willing to put me on here for a while. I do appreciate that. Uh, otherwise, yeah, we, we got, a, I got a lot to talk about, and I look forward to it. Sure. I mean, you, you just came out with a book, correct? And it, it, uh the story takes place in New Jersey, and you're from New Jersey. So let's let's talk about this a little bit here. So you came out with this story, and it's about it takes place in New Jersey. You're from New Jersey. Let, let's talk a little bit about uh, you know the the influence that you had on this. Uh, is this this like a little bit of a personal mem- memoir and such? Uh, actually, it's, in some ways it is in terms of the philosophy being underwritten within the story itself, but. The, the way the book started, it, it was originally the, the first chapter was just a standalone short story. And basically, the point of it, writing it originally, was to write something that was completely absurd and insane without leaving the realm of reality, something that was still believable. And I remember the first time I tested on somebody, I showed it to my cousin. And I'm, I'm sitting there watching him read it. It was originally like 14 pages. And a little more than halfway through it, he looks up and he goes, this happened to you. And I go, no, not a single word of that chapter is true in any way, shape or form. It, it was completely fiction. And I think writing it was kind of um, inspired a little bit by the way the Big Lebowski was done. Because The Big Lebowski was one of those movies that it delved into the absurd without actually disengaging from reality. Everything in that story is viable, though the odds of anything like that happening are extremely slim. Um, So that's kind of what the the whole point of it was at first. And then, you know, as life goes on, there's there's things you encounter, there's people you read whatever the case may be. And the story just started to build from there. And in some ways it built from 
stories I had heard from other people, people I had met. And there was a couple people I actually interviewed from it. There's only one chapter or two chapters, excuse me, in this book where the, the, what happens in those chapters actually happened to me in any way. Um, the, the rest of the book uh, is either completely fiction or it's taken from stories that other people told me. So I interviewed a few people um, and, uh, you know, and, and they gave me these short stories and like, uh, let's say chapter, I believe it's chapter three, the, it should be the hotel scene. I don't even remember anymore, chapter three or four. But there's a, there's a hotel scene and some guy told me that scene at a bar. So one day, I liked the story so much, I laughed at it so hard that I called him up and asked him if I could use it. And he, of course, he had no issue with it, and he let me use the story, and then there was a couple others. And so it's kind of like a, a mishmash of people's personal stories with um, other things that I wanted to convey in the book itself. And then you have the main character. And the main character is based on... Uh, Hunter S. Thompson. Actually, if you look at it, it's the protagonist and antagonist. And they're basically based on two sides of his personality. Uh, the protagonist is based on the serious uh, journalist side of Hunter S. Thompson, whereas the antagonist is based on that wild man side. And the book is basically them clashing, you know, as, as during this one year of college that they go through. Uh, and, and of course, it takes place in Jersey. Now, with that said, um, you know, it's going into how Hunter S. Thompson kind of lost control of that character. So that, that's where it takes off from there. That, that's really the basis of the book. Uh, if you want to know how I wrote it, most of it was written when I had time off while I was doing uh, long-term uh, teaching gigs at uh, Eastside High School in Newark. For a long time so you'd have these big breaks like 80 minutes and i'd get to work on the computer while i had these breaks and basically wrote it over the course of i don't know eight to ten years just slowly adding to it as time went on that is so, a slow process this was a slow process 10 years right yeah you know there's a lot of other stuff i wrote i never knew where i was gonna what i was gonna do with this and i never really had any intention of actually publishing it until I showed it to a friend of mine who is a published author as well. And he liked it so much. He offered to edit the book for free uh, because you kind of need that in order to get a book published. You, you don't want to edit the book solely by yourself. Uh, and unfortunately editing services are extremely expensive. And I didn't know if I was going to really want to make that investment on a book that I didn't know really how I was going to do. You know, this type of literature is not a big seller in our society. It's not commercial fiction. It's delving into ideas. There's no actually solid plot in the book itself. You know, the book is based on basically the things that are are building him up as, you know, towards what he wants to do in his career, which is becoming an investigative journalist. 
So that that's uh, and you know it's about overcoming his fears, and I think you know the reason he's attracted to and sticks with the antagonist is because that guy is always putting him in situations where he's going to have to overcome his fears. Yes, and that in turn goes to that comparison between Hunter S. Thompson and, of course, your characters here. Yeah. Well, yeah, the two sides of his personality clashing, Hunter S. Thompson's two personalities, serious journalist side versus that wild man side he created for his gonzo, gonzo journalism. And, uh, you know, it's because Hunter S. Thompson himself, too, I'll elaborate on this real quick. Goff is a very serious journalist who wanted to add a flair and do something different in his stories. You know, it started with his coverage at a Kentucky Derby where, you know, he started talking about partying and drinking and being a complete madman. And when he wrote the story, he was supposed to cover the Derby itself. Instead, he covered what was going on in the audience. What were the people like that was at the event? And when he was all done with the event, he didn't even know who won the Derby. But the story ended up being a huge hit for the Rolling Stones. So as time went on, people expected Hunter S. Thompson to be that guy. And slowly but surely, he became that guy. So the book is almost a very subtle examination of the clash that he had with those two personality types. That sounds You're right there. <laughs> that was just coughing some of the sticky icky. I got a little blue jazz situation happening right now. <laughs> Um, no, what I was going to say, it's funny, Ray, and what I was going to say, there are some, and we brought him up earlier, the gentleman who wrote and produced and took care of Fight Club. There's kind of a Fight Club vibe, except they're two actual characters. Obviously, it's not the same guy who's hallucinating. It is kind of how the Brad Pitt character was always that guy. Oh, Yo, you got to do this. You got to do this. Come on. Let's go. And then there is the other guy who needs kind of convincing, but at the end of the day, he kind of wants to do it too, but he's just afraid. So there is that dynamic as well. That's a great comparison. Um, and I'm going to tell you, that's a very influential movie on me. That's, that's one of my personal favorite movies. Um, obviously that, that hits on a lot of different things from um, class warfare to uh, the diminishing of masculinity in our society. Uh, and, and, and Brad Pitt is the manifestation of what Edward Norton's character wants to be, you know? Um, so that, that's, uh, and he is slowly becoming him as the story unfolds. I, I love that, uh, that movie. I've read that book probably four times. <laughs> that book is wonderful. Fantastic. Well, uh, you know, that, that, this, this sounds great. I, I think this is going to be a, a, a good one to, to kind of settle up to on like a nice rainy spring night. Uh, when there's nothing going on here uh, post uh, post quarantine, but uh, I wanted to say, you know, as far as uh, the, getting this book out there, getting it produced, uh, why don't you take us through the process of, you know, you self published it, did it all yourself, and put it out there for everybody. What was the process that went into that? Because you might end up just inspiring somebody out there to do the same thing, and uh, you know, in an age where we can basically take something soup to nuts and produce it, take us take us on that journey of of how you did that. Well, the, I'm going to tell you the truth. The, the publishing process itself is not that difficult. It, it's a little frustrating at first when you're trying to learn it. Um, Amazon actually makes it 
really easy to do overall. Um, it, it, it's, uh, you know, we, uploading the book is not difficult. Uh, you do have to sit there and kind of fit it to their parameters. Uh, you know, and, and you're going to have to play with it a bit. But um, it was something I was able to probably do within a couple hours total once I had the book uploaded. And again, there's some frustration. You're going to have to go back, edit it, and change font size. Um, like I, I did one version of the book, and I got it out there, and people were like, oh, the uh, Word document itself that I had done. Then, uh, you know, so you get it uploaded, you know, you, you use the tools that KDP gives you. Now, the, the tricky part is is getting it out there. And for me, it, it's, it's especially t tricky because some of the subject matter is, um, and, and, and there's a reason why I, I wrote this under a pen name, is uh, basically because of what I do for a living. Um, what I do for a living would not look highly upon some of the things and themes and other things in the book, you know, things that take place in the book. So it's, uh, it's something that I had to be, uh, careful with. And it's, it's hard to really push a book when you want to be careful to distance your real life to, you know, to this. And I'm going to tell you the truth. The, the book is something I mean, I, I kind of always want to say I published something in my life, and I think that was more a driving factor. Um, I'm hoping as time goes on, maybe it gets a little bit more notoriety. Um, the amount of uh, advertising I've done has not been major, and I need to improve. And I think, you know, I, I actually published it right before COVID hit, and that kind of derailed my attempts to really start pushing the book. So now that things are winding down, I'd like to start really getting it out there again. But I'm, it's walking a fine line, you know, because the person I was in college, the things I witnessed in college, I'm not that person anymore. You know, I, I'm, I'm not, I, I, I don't delve into a lot of those things. I'll tell you the truth, I don't even really drink anymore, you know, just occasionally. Um, so separating myself, who I am now, and, and and getting people to understand that who I was in that, you know, where, where that the things are that's coming from in that book and how I don't look at them as too big a deal in terms of the way I cover that material. You know, you could say in terms of my attitude towards drug use, um, sex, things like that. Obviously, we witness a lot of crazy things in college. Um, and sure. another thing, too, like. If anything on how it reflects on me is how my college party life actually was a big help to me. It did toughen me up in ways. There were some crazy things I did experience in college on those crazy nights. Uh, to tell you the truth, it was a lot of times because of two mutual friends that Steve and I have. In fact, it's uh, the two guys that uh, you know were the reason we uh, met. And Steve knows how crazy those guys can be. And a lot of the uh, antagonist is based on one of them. So, you know, it, it's, you want to put this out there, but I understand the material uh, for a job. You know, if my, if, if my employer were to read this, they might give me a majorly hard time. Uh, so, Again, promoting the book, 
that makes it a little more difficult. And there are other projects I plan on getting to in the future that'll be a lot more mild. But this one, for what I wanted to do, I think it was about getting more my personal philosophy out there layered within this story itself. And, you know, again, these are little stories that happen to other people. Um, there are some things that are taken from real life. Uh, to tell you the truth, I don't know if Steve told you. But one of the characters, supporting characters, is actually modeled on him uh, okay. from our years past. And um, that character, there's an especially there's one chapter where he actually dominates. That story itself, and Steve knows this because we discussed it a little bit before in pre-production. You know, I think when he read it, he felt a little bit bad about what happened there. Um, the story is very true. That 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 one chapter is very true. I don't want to say exactly which one it is, but um, that chapter actually fit in so perfect what I wanted to do and who the characters were. It, it was great for character development, and it was great to show the attitudes of the characters towards each other and what ends up manifesting after that it, it, it's it's a and actually it's a uh, flashback chapter that serves as a catalyst to understand things that happened in the book previous to that so you know it, it's um so yeah it, it's it's hard to separate my real life and my professional life uh to uh the ability to promote this you know it's good so it, it, it's you know it, it. I walk a fine line, I guess. What are your uh, What are your your biggest influences? I would say Hunter S. Thompson probably was to start off. Uh, I, actually, he's he's up there. I would say my two biggest influences, and especially when it comes to that first chapter, uh, are Theodore Dostoevsky and Henry Miller. Henry Miller, uh, who did Tropic of Cancer. Basically, the first 20 pages of that book, in ways, is meant to weed out people who don't have the stomach for words. Um, when, you, when you look at the, the beginning of that book, it becomes extremely obscene. Um, I think, honestly, the opening to that book is the greatest opening to a book I've ever read. The first page plus is absolutely phenomenal. Um, but he dives, what he dives into in terms of sex is absolutely insane. And, and, and of course that, that book ended up breaking all the obscenity laws in this country. It was banned in the United States for, I don't know, 27 years plus, whatever it was. And he ended up coming back to the States. He was an expat living in Paris and he came back and he fought it all the way to the Supreme court. And he got all the obscenity laws overturned, uh, with that book. So he's one of my big influences, and he's more of an influence in terms of the way I actually write. My prose is heavily influenced by uh, Henry Miller. And then Fyodor Dostoevsky is another beautiful writer, but he's a heavy influence in terms of philosophy. Um, I remember the first time I picked him up, I read Crime and Punishment. I uh, couldn't put it down, and I ended up reading all five of his major novels within a calendar year. And I remember a friend of mine 
the guy who's a published author and he's the one who um, encouraged me to publish this book. Uh, when I told him that, he actually said, my God, that's a feat within itself. You know, he was the one who actually introduced me to Dostoevsky. So, you know, those two guys are big influences. Uh, Nietzsche was a big influence. Albert Camus is a big influence. Um, you know, uh, uh, George Orwell, huge influence as well. So th there's, uh, you know, I, I've read a lot of people, but those guys are uh, probably the, the biggest influences on me. Uh, in terms of modern day authors, uh, big fan of Chuck Palahniuk, who wrote Fight Club. Um, I'm a big fan of um, Cormac McCarthy, who wrote uh, No Country for Old Men. Um, you know, and I actually read uh, Donna Tartt's book, Secret History, recently. That was pretty good. So at least, you know, we do have some modern-day authors in this country that put out some pretty solid literature, which is nice to know, you know, because you... You don't get it as much now. A lot of people, you know, it's 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 the Tom Clancy, it's Da Vinci Code. I forgot his name now. The guy who wrote that. Uh, and I remember I had delved into so many of those conspiracy theories that my buddy, before I even read that book, my friend was about three hundred pages into it, and he was telling me about it. And I actually told him what was going to be in the last one hundred pages. And he finished it, and he's like, my God, you were completely right. You know, he was just taking from Masonic uh, lore and, um, you know, other conspiracies about, you know, Jesus Christ and, you know, Mary Magdalene and all that. There's, uh, you know, there's a lot out there. Um, so it's, you know, I, I'm, I'm somebody who wants to, who would love to see literature itself you know re regardless of the the material you're talking but my my attraction's always been to ideas uh when it comes to novels so those guys are my uh my biggest influences the question is so how old were you and what kind of impact did 1984 have on you i read 1984 in my early 20s um i, I would say the impact was devastating um, it, it, it almost gives you, it, it, I mean, it gives you a feeling of hopelessness, you know, when it comes to, uh, totalitarian societies. Now I know that's not the case. Listen, 1984 itself, there, there's a, um, there's a big misconception about that book. One, a lot of people think that book's about communism. Now Orwell already wrote about communism. Uh, he, he did that in animal farm. 1984 has all the elements of fascism and you know he was involved in the spanish civil war he opposed franco and the fascists you know orwell was a democratic socialist and when you're talking about 1984 when you're talking about the two minutes of hate reproductive control identifying enemies within and outside the state a clearly defined hierarchy with the inner party outer party and the proletariat those are all things that point to fascism. Those are tenets of fascism. And that's what really Orwell was attacking was fascism itself. Now, Orwell made it sound hopeless. But the truth is, if you look at fascism, fascism is doomed to crumble no matter what. And take that from somebody whose family 
lived in a fascist society. Uh, my mother grew up in Portugal till she was 18 years old. She used to tell me how people got taken in the middle of the night, you know, by the stormtroopers, by Salazar's stormtroopers. Um, you know, she told me how people were terrified of speaking out against the government. Uh, you know, other things about fascism is they try to keep the literacy rate very low. Uh, at the time, Portugal had a 10% uh, literacy rate. You know, um, now my family, uh, especially my father's family, they were actually well-to-do. And in order to maintain their status within that country, uh, they had to be acting party members. And that is something that I know about my family's history and understand. And, and you know, you do it to survive. It's not so much that you, you sometimes believe in that ideology or wholeheartedly agree with it that you adopt it or you you stick to it just because that is the way your family maintains its survival. So it's hard to judge too in terms of people that you know fell prey to the ideology uh, a lot of times. but you know when, when you when you're talking about it, it, it does seem hopeless within a fascist society. and when that fascism reigns supreme, obviously the populace, the popular uh the population's terrified you know and uh they they live in fear of the government and it should never be like that um obviously v for vendetta another story that covers fascism uh a movie that i love that story is about hope and how the proletariat can in fact uh you know stand up to the fascist powers that be and i think this is especially pertinent you know with 1984 because there is obviously a scare of fascism taking hold in this country these days and we may have been slowly delving into it um you know some people say for the last 40 years you could actually trace it back almost to the like 1945 1950s when you're talking the red scare you oh, know we're, we're yeah yeah, we're, we, we, we made up enemies that weren't there. You know, we persecuted people merely because they were part of the Communist Party. And or were they? Or were they, you know? I, well, they, some they of them were. To, yeah, I, but, guess, I guess you're right. Yeah, so some of them were, but... You but know, they it, weren't it a threat. Like if you were a, a Jewish Hollywood producer, you were, you were a communist. That, that it got that out of hand, I felt like. You know, obviously I wasn't alive during there, and I only studied it in college, but... You know, it just seemed like it just seemed like for the the stuff that goes on these days at times 50, people were like getting their lives were getting ruined back then. And they were just getting, you know, but probably some of them were, you know, and we look at things like, I guess, you know, half the Democratic Party could probably constitute as communist, you know, especially with, with things that are going on these days. The So, well, I'm, I'm going to tell you the truth. I mean, if you look at communism by its strictest definition what communism is is complete state control of all industry and property there's no more private property there's no merit-based salaries no religion everything is geared where the populace becomes dependent on the government itself and that the government holds this false facade that says oh you know everything is owned by the collective um, so the, there, there is no private ownership. Um, 
I don't think a lot of Democrats believe that. I mean, if you want to talk, say, yeah, there's a lot of people that are democratic socialists in this country that I would agree with. Definitely. There are people that want to mix of socialism and capitalism, which we already have. I mean, you ask your, uh, an average U.S. citizen to define socialism or communism, a lot of times they're hard-pressed to do it. A lot of times they're hard-pressed to understand. Like, let's, let's talk about some socialist programs in this country. Let's face it, U.S. military, that is a socialist program. It is a government-controlled organization. If you're a government-controlled organization, technically, you fall under the definition of socialism. So you're talking CIA, FBI, ATF, uh, public schools, public libraries, um, fire departments, police departments, all these things that are public services are technically socialist in nature. And we do it for the public good. And the truth is a mix of capitalism and socialism where you have those socialism socialist programs mixed in with capitalism because you do this because if you have essential services that are controlled by capitalism, then you're talking about, if you're not going to heavily regulate them, you're going to get price gouged. I mean, you, know, you don't look to, need to look any further than the insurance industry in this country and how out of control that is. They, they don't produce anything creatively. The only thing that they look to do creatively is how to rip you off more money. You know, it's, it's just about creating more profit. That's what the insurance industry's entire motive is. What's the point of having a privatized insurance in this country? I, I'm still trying to figure that out. How does that give us any advantage? I get it. You're talking to a guy who worked for Comcast for 12 years. So, you know, <laughs> it actually is really that it's, it just seemed like somewhere in the late, late 80s to early 90s, it, it shifted away from people and started to turn into how can we maximize profits the most to, yeah. to, to satisfy our shareholders and boost the stock price on Wall Street? Yeah, I would every say, company, really. So I would yeah. argue it would even be before that. I would argue it would probably be sometime in the late 70s, early 80s, particularly during their economics era. To be honest, that's when I really feel like that the top of the echelon, that's when they're there. That is when their salaries were skyrocketing. That's when they were giving themselves millions upon tens of millions of dollars, tens of million dollars of bonuses and also cutting 30,000 jobs. They stopped about the worker. that, That could be a good marker. I mean, in this country, at some point, we forgot why we put a high effective tax rate in, and it was something that was due to the uh, the stock market crash that caused the Great Depression. You know, when, when FDR went and examined all the causes for the crash and the severity of the crash, I believe we hit at 1.33% unemployment, and through most of it, unemployment was between 11 and 14%. Um, and the reason those things happen is because you have business owners that were just plundering their company. They weren't paying their employees. Um, they were just sucking their companies dry. They weren't investing in infrastructure. Uh, so when, when the crash happened, nobody had savings. Nobody could endure any sort of long-term unemployment. Um, you know, and FDR saw these issues as a contributor and, 
when he instituted that 92% top tax bracket, the intention wasn't to collect those taxes. The intention was to drive business owners to give that money instead to their employees to invest in more infrastructure. And if you look at our country's economic history from 1945 to 1969, our largest period of sustained growth and prosperity. I mean, this country, what we did in those years, that is one of the all-time greatest time periods of any societal empire ever. Uh, it's amazing what we had. And you had it is because you, you set a ceiling on what people can make. And when you drove business owners to pay people more, give them more benefits, less working hours, they could spend more time with their families, raise their children better, go on vacations, experience other things in the world. You had an amazing society. And when Nixon came in and you had the oil crisis and other economic crises, Reagan came along and said, no, 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 this is how we fix those problems. And he came up with a solution that was short term and doomed to fail. And that propelled fascist ideology at the top because fascism really is about concentrated power and wealth controlling the nation. Sure. On both sides. It could be both That's sides. Uh, in, in some ways, yeah. In yeah. some ways, yeah, because it's a power mentality. Yeah. And, you know, you, you divide the people by creating these enemies inside and outside the state. And, you know, it, it's uh, what it's led to is been a fractured society, a diminishing middle class, wage stagnation. Um, we've had the wage gap has been skyrocketing since 1980. And that's dangerous. It, it creates social instability. It leads to, uh, as we have seen, cycles of boom and bust. Uh, if you look at the last three Republican presidents, those their economic policies do border on fascist economic policies. And all three of them have left recessions. The economies contracted in the last three, the last three Republican presidents, we've had economic contractions at the end of their presidencies. Um, I'm not sitting here. I don't want to advocate for the Democratic Party. I have my issues with them, too. I am an independent uh, who leans left ideology in terms of ideology, um, in terms of the actions of the Democratic Party. There are things that I, I do have some major issues with, um, it, but I have... Uh, I have issues with both parties. And in this country, you need to think independently. You, you, you need to try to be objective when you look at both. You need to try to look at um, policy in terms of what they're pushing and whether or not they're going to hold to it. You know, so it, it's um, it, and it's difficult today. It's difficult with social media. It's difficult when you have so much misinformation coming out. It's like, who do you believe? And how are you supposed to make decisions in a voting booth without getting good information? You know, so and uh, I know it's uh, social media. I know you guys have touched upon this before, you know, and I know you guys have talked about the algorithms. And these this is this is essential to trying to understand uh, our culture problems in this country right now you know and uh 
I know you talked about it, Vig, um, in terms of the algorithms and the the problems they present and the rabbit holes that they put people down, you know. And, it, you know, I had somebody, it's funny, and a big problem too. I, for me personally, I'm a research hound. You seem like somebody who, if you get interested in a subject, you go and research it. And that's Absolutely. extremely important. Yep. You know, Absolutely. most people don't do that. And I had somebody on Facebook, I got into an argument with actually, it, it was Steve's, the, those two guys, uh, those two mutual friends of Steve and myself, it was their older sister. And we got into it a little bit about the election. And she made a claim that there were more voters than there were registered voters. So I actually gave her the figure of registered voters. I said, listen, there are 213,717,000 whatever voters in this country. And she responded with, well, what left-wing media site did you get that off of? And I responded with that, right? I got it off the government census bureau site, at which point she defended me and blocked me permanently. So this is the stuff that's going on. See, I, I left Facebook in October, 2019. So I'm missing out on all this, but I, I, I know. So, so things have definitely gotten a lot lonelier. I'm a lot more unplugged, but I'm honestly, I'm a happier person at this point, but it, it, you're, you touched on a few things there where people don't, research things themselves or they do and they end up going down a rabbit hole and then you know, there's people that they, they go and look for just random knowledge on on the internet that they can pull yep. off and then next thing you know they're involved in in, in the latest q and on uh you know <laughs> the latest q and on conspiracy really you know that's i think how q and on got so big is because they had people that just much like the one you had just mentioned there like you know where people are just they were you know, given some wrong information here or there, or like, and let's face it, CNN and even the CDC, the World Health Organization, they haven't really been that, they, you know, there's been things that they have not been accurate back. Or there's been some stuff that yeah. they've had to walk back on, you know, and uh, that, that they make up, mistakes. Yeah. Yep. So that ends up spurring on this distrust in, say, CNN and, you know, some of these media outlets and even the, the government, really. And so then they start going down these rabbit holes and following, we, we need to count, we need to rely on each other. We'll, 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 we'll get each other the information. Well, that just ends up becoming this huge, huge clusterfuck, which is now what, what we call this, this present day age. And I, I felt like things were getting a little bit better, but it really isn't at all. It just, it just that it peaked in January 6th and then kind of like everything had to deflate a little bit. Cause we were just so hot right now that, uh, you know, we, we really couldn't keep going. We were actually spiraling out of control at that point, right, going right into the inauguration. But uh, you, you did touch on a couple of good points because I feel like that that's a perfect example of what is going on on, say, say Facebook or Twitter where, you know, people are just saying, well, if it's CNN, and I, and I mentioned, I heard it mentioned in the insurrection so many times, whoa, are they from CNN? Kick their fucking ass! <laughs> you know, like, oh, yep. Wow. That's really uh, it's par for the course these days. Uh uh, you, you know, there, there's and there's a couple things like with QAnon itself. I, if you look at who gets sucked into it, right? It, it's it's a lot of times people who they just don't have a background in politics or U.S. history. They they don't know a lot. And quite honestly, with with, with what we promote in this society, and if you notice, we promote the celebrity movies are huge in our society. And almost 
have a feel like that these people feel like they got like pulled into like a spy movie that they're getting these little cue clues from Q and that they're now privy to some esoteric knowledge and that they're part of a movement that's going to write America, you know, that is going to make America, you know, what it once was, just take it back to this mythological past, which is also a tenet of fascism. Um, no, it's interesting before you go on, if there was only a slogan, to make America something again. If, if <laughs> oh, Ronald Reagan came up with one so much money. back in the day. <laughs> I think it was. Um, well, you know, listen, he's an opportunist who took advantage of things. And I don't think he even understood what he tapped into. Um, but QAnon itself, I would, if I was a betting man, I would say Q, the guy who started it all, most likely Russian intelligence, uh, feeding misinformation to the U.S. public. I mean that you know, that would be my guess. Totally, I could see that. Vice had some of them on as part of an investigative story, and they they came right out and said that look, we just wanted to see how far this could go. Like we just started because we were, you know, and it was like it was all these people in quarantine. They're all sitting around. You have this, like I mentioned this before in a previous podcast. You have these where a lot of people here in this country have lost their significance. They've lost their jobs. Their families are torn apart. Their businesses are down. They don't have anything. And they've lost that significance. So they gain the significance by joining with these like-minded individuals on the internet trying to find out who done it, you know, and, and you see, you know, you see like, so, and it's, it's easy to piece together the narrative when, especially when you have the democratic party moving in, of course, then that's it. The new world order is moving in nationwide mask mandate. That's it. They're going to tell us what to do. It's all going down, you know, and it just keeps, it just keeps snowballing. Uh, but I really do. I blame it. I blame QAnon on the loss of significance with a lot of Americans this past year. And so they figure they can gain it back by just trying to grapple at, mis- at misinformation or disinformation. Misinformation is like just like a, a mistake. Like it was mistakenly printed or, you know, but disinformation is actually yes. information that is with ill intent. It's like it's deliberately put out there. And, uh, and just this thing is like with, with Twitter and Facebook, they knew this was going on for years and they did nothing about it because and I tried to actually state that like, you know, in some, some of the research that I did where, Yes, they changed the algorithm. Facebook changed the algorithm in order to try to make things more accurate in news, to clear out the fake news. They then now put more crime and and things of that nature into the algorithm. And they ended up just creating this beast from it and tried to, to, to rid face fake news. They actually ended up creating more fake news and and. and and really inciting more things, more disinformation on the internet. It's, it's and it's like that walled garden too. It's only on Facebook, so it doesn't get any. You know, it's, it's just it's on. It's under that roof there. So they just all these things made it fester even more. So I was not surprised by January sixth at all, and I'm not surprised uh, about what's going on these days and and how it's. it's I, don't, I think it's still going to it's still going to fester for a while before it gets better. Well, you know you. And you brought up some great points. It, it is people creating a false meaning for themselves and, and and giving themselves significance. You're absolutely right about that. And I mean, you look at the guy, the Q non shaman. He's a perfect example. The guy living with his mother. Mm-hmm. He, you know, he, apparently he would walk around the neighborhood in that outfit. 
down in Arizona, you know, and it's a guy who found significance in that movement when really he had nothing else going on in his life. And that is something that we really need to examine as a society and what's happening culturally in this country that people are becoming susceptible to something like QAnon. I mean, even on its face, QAnon makes no sense. The, the U.S. military recruiting Donald Trump to become president? U.S. military would never go outside its own ranks to do something like that. Just Not to mention, I mean, a global cabal that is controlling the United States but didn't already take control of the U.S. military? Well, that yeah. doesn't make sense either. Yeah, then dumb. it's selling children on a on a furniture website like that's a little crazy i mean that i mean it's done on the dark web <laughs> they suck their blood out get the adrenochrome so they can continue to live and thrive and it's actually uh, it's, like, it, a huge base of, of congress <laughs> people that are involved in hollywood people that's how they stay I, yeah, I, and it just I, happens to be leftists that's it it's just people on the left and george george w bush and the entire left. That, that's who it happens to be. Sure. Um, and, and you're right. It is. And, and thank you for that distinction. It is disinformation. You're absolutely right. And it is done. It is done to create a divide in our nation uh, between our people. I mean, your average Democrat, your average Republican, and it doesn't matter. Skin color, ethnicity, nationality, whatever you want to say. Our... You know, what we need at our very core is the ability to survive, uh, the ability not to constantly sit in a struggle and try to, to figure out our survival on a day to day basis and not fall into, you know, something that's just where life is just horrible for us. And when, when you lose your identity, and, and again, another problem is. In this country, our careers have become synonymous with our identity as who we are as people. Sure. That's a problem, too. I've especially been when you that myself. Yes. Yeah. If you don't have a good job and, you know, you're always you're worried about how other people are going to perceive you, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and your that perception is attached to your career. Well, that's that's going to make you feel diminished as a human being as well. And again, makes you more susceptible to videos on YouTube telling you about a global cabal sucking adrenochrome out of children. You know, it, it, it's, it really is batshit sometimes. It really is uh, some of the stuff. I, I don't even know what other way to put it. But it, it's, uh, but you know, in all honesty, it's not just like people who are impoverished and don't have jobs that fall into it, though, too. Because you, you do have that sect that has fallen prey to it. And then you have another sect of people who actually do do well, who either own businesses, have good jobs, have good heads on their shoulders. And their big problem is they just don't have a background in politics and history. Uh, they don't understand political theory. Overall, they don't, you know... A lot of them don't understand the history of empires. And it's a lot of information intake. Like, I had somebody ask me to try to explain some of these things. And I'm like, you know, you're, you're talking, but you're asking me to summarize thousands upon thousands of pages of reading 
In a few minutes, it's impossible. You have to go and read things yourself. You have to go out and seek out information yourself. The only person who's ever going to be your true teacher in the end is yourself. And if you don't have the will to go research it, well, you're, you can end up being susceptible to going down a bad path in terms of ideology. Yeah, and that's, yeah, that's very important. And that's the thing that we've talked about a lot is that people aren't aware of themselves. They're not aware of our history. They're not aware of how oftentimes they make the mistake, same mistake over and over and over. And I've mentioned a couple times that that side that we're talking about, the QAnon cats, all those guys, they always lose. They Those were the same people who were in Germany in, in the 1940s, or in the 30s and 40s. They're the same people who were anti-segregationists in the 50s and 60s. They're the same people and they lose all the time. And they're going to lose this time too. It's just that simple. Yeah, you hope so. You know, I mean, some people could say like that, in ways you could say conservative ideology is almost doomed to die because it is a clinging on of the past and will always move forward. And maybe, uh, you know, conservatism, that, that, that ideology, maybe you need to put the brakes on progression a little bit because now, I mean, and again, you could circle this back to Facebook and social media. We progressed so fast with the Internet. And how that information was being fed to us as a populace, we're just now looking to put the brakes on it a little bit. Um, we're just starting to see the results of that, you know, social media being completely unfettered. And there's still a hesitation to really regulate. It. I mean, we, we're asking Facebook to regulate itself. Can you really regulate yourself? Is that even possible? I mean, you'd have to be one pretty responsible human being to do it. When you're talking about Mark Zuckerberg, he seems a little disconnected, to, too disconnected to be able to do that. 